So if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4 because we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And if you were with us last week, you'll recall that we looked at the first part of this chapter in which we witnessed the first persecution of the church. Peter and John were there in the temple area. They were arrested, as you'll recall, because they were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as it related to the man who had been healed of his lameness since birth. And, and as they did that, we recognized that this was an attack upon the church. It was the first one that the church had experienced. In fact, summarizing these first four chapters of the book of Acts, John Stott said this, that, that following Pentecost came persecution. In fact, he says this, that the, there was a ferocious counterattack launched upon the church by Satan just as soon as the Holy Spirit had come. But that was an external attack upon the church. That's what we saw last week. But as we look this week, we're going to find out that, the, that Satan had a, had a two-pronged attack, not just external attack, but he was going to attack the church from the inside. As a matter of fact, Stott says this, Satan's second and more cunning assault was moral corruption or compromise. Having failed to destroy the church from the outside, he attempted to insinuate evil into its interior life by ruining Christian fellowship. In fact, here in chapters 4 and 5, what we get a picture of is what that internal fellowship within the church looked like. It's as if Luke sort of peels back the curtain and gives us a, an interview of what was happening inside the huddle of people. We know that the church was a large organization by this point. Some, some would estimate that here by the time you get to chapter 5, that there could have been as many as 20,000 involved with the church there in Jerusalem at this point. And so Luke begins to explain to us what things look like from the inside. And as he does, we get some pictures that are contrasting for us, some things that I think are helpful for us as we read this passage. We see there's some, there's some opposing images that are presented to us from this text that we can begin to learn a little more about what the church in Jerusalem was like, but also to learn how our church and how we are to respond and how to live in the modern day. Now, before I begin reading, though, let me address this one issue and remind you that when Luke wrote this book of Acts, he, he did not include chapter divisions and verse divisions. And so those actually came about 1,500 years later, and I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful because I can tell you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. But understand that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not the inspired word of God. They were something that helped, that an editor later came in to help us be able to determine where we needed to turn to. And, and sometimes those divisions were put in places that I don't think were the very best places to put them. In fact, I don't think the chapter 5 division is in a really good spot. As a matter of fact, I think chapter 4, verse 32, that begins a passage that works its way all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. So we're going to read all of that today, and I'm going to blow right through that chapter division, and you'll be okay with it, and don't let it, don't let it create any anxiety for you that, that we don't stop at that point, because I really think as you hear it read, you'll be able to see, yeah, that was all supposed to go together. So that's what I want us to do today. So I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and read all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but that he had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land, lands or houses sold them, 
and brought the proceeds of those things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter answered her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for this day and we thank you for your love for us. I thank you for this church family and I thank you for their willingness to, to adapt and to be flexible and for the patience that they've shown, for the encouragement that they continue to demonstrate. I'm just grateful to be a part of such a loving church family as you have blessed us with here at Ivy Creek. Thank you for the unity that we have among one another. Thank you for providing us with such a wonderful place this morning, for giving us the opportunity to continue to gather together as we have in, in the comfort that you've given us today. Father, I think of so many places across the world where I have been personally that would love to have the opportunity to meet in a place just such as this. Thank you for providing it for us. You are the good God who provides all good gifts. Every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. You are the one to whom we are grateful, and we acknowledge your grace this morning. And I just pray that as we together collectively look at your scriptures today, that you would use your word to affect change in our hearts and to bring about understanding of you and understanding of ourselves and help us then to guard our steps and to guard our hearts against sin and against the influence of, of Satan. And I pray that all of that would occur as a result of the time we spend studying your word today. So transform us by the power of your word, working through your spirit in our lives, and we'll praise you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned in my introduction, um, in the first section of this passage, I believe what Luke is presenting for us is a picture of what unity looks like in the early church there in Jerusalem. In fact, Luke describes the church as having one heart and one soul. He says that 
All things were held in common among the membership of the church. He tells us that none within the church went lacking because all who were possessors of lands and houses sold what they had and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet so that those things could be distributed to anyone who has, as needs arose. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because it's what he had also told us in a very similar form back in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Luke there says that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among any as had need. Derek Thomas describes this really surprising uh, nature of what the early church did this way. He says, for a time... They shared their goods and property with one another in a way that demonstrated their unity. Now, it's that realization that comes from these passages and these descriptions that has caused many to, to accuse the early church of practicing what they would say would be a primitive form of communism. However, I believe that if we concentrate on what is actually revealed to us in the text, we'll find that it was not communism that the church was engaged in, but rather they were simply concerned about the needs of their Christian community. In fact, it's those two things that I want you to see. It's the first point on your outline this morning. I want us to, to see these comparisons. There are the contrasting nature of com communism versus community. Communism versus community. Now, as we looked outside the biblical text, and we remember what we studied when we went to civics class and political science classes, we'll know that communism, particularly from the modern understanding of it, uh, is a form of government most closely associated with the ideas of Karl Marx. It's a political theory that is, is based on the goal of eliminating socioeconomic class struggles by creating a classless society in which everyone shares the benefits of labor. Now, it's a form of, of, of government, and, 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 and as such, it is the state that controls all things. It controls property. It controls wealth. And as such, no individual, no person, no group of persons are able to rise above the, the class or the level of others around them because it is the state that owns everything and distributes it and, and controls all of it. And it should be noted that, that though these thoughts Many times we look at Karl Marx, those same sort of ideas existed long before Karl Marx. He was the one who was able to codify these things and put them more clearly as an idea and as a political understanding. But it is that that has caused many to say, well, that's really what the church was doing based upon Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And they, as I said, they accused the church of practicing an early form of communism. But a simple reading of the text, I believe, will show that that is actually not what's happening in the book of Acts at all. John Polehill, who's a commentator, has written and enumerated many ways in which we can understand that, that communism is not what we see occurring here. First of all, he says this, there was no transfer of ownership or no control of production or income. There was no requirement to surrender one's property to the community. We don't see that occurring here. Rather, what we see is that the members of the early church did what they did voluntarily. Nothing was forced upon them. The church did not require them to sell anything that they had. In fact, the, the, the voluntary nature of the, the, this Christian practice is evidenced by the way that Luke describes what occurs. He says, look, they sold all their property and brought the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to anyone as 
needs arose. It was a need-based scenario. Secondly, notice this, the example of Barnabas that we come to there in verses 36 and 37. We're going to come back to him in a moment and discuss him in more detail. But consider this for now. If surrendering property was obligatory and was enforced within the early church, then there would hardly be any reason to highlight him as a positive example of what occurred. If it was mandated by the church, there would be no reason to to note what he did as being something special. Thirdly, the example of Ananias and Sapphira. What Peter clarified, as I read to you earlier, for Ananias was that his sin was actually lying about his charity. He says in chapter 5, verse 4, that, that the land remained, that Ananias sold, it remained his to do with as he pleased. In other words, Ananias was under no obligation to give the proceeds of the sale of the property to the church. The issue was that he lied about it. And then fourth, and this really looks outside our text, but to what comes later in Acts chapter 6, we read about the central fund that had been established for the widows of the church. And as Pole Hill states, he says, this was clearly not an apportioning of each one's lot from a common fund, but rather it was a charity fund created for the needy. Finally, one other example I'll throw at you so that you can consider it comes from Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, we read about a lady named Mary. She was John Mark's mother. She was evidently a wealthy lady. She owned a home. She she was wealthy enough that she had even a maid who helped her there in her home. And the Bible tells us in Acts 12 that many of the church gathered in her home and were beneficiaries of her hospitality. Nevertheless, Mary still owned her home. It still belonged to her. Now, for those reasons, and I put those out there for you to consider, that's why I think what we read about here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is patently not a primitive form of communism. But as I stated earlier, I think it is definitively a description of Christians being concerned with other Christians within their community. As the word suggests, these believers held to a common unity. Verse 32 makes that clear. They were of one heart and one soul. They had all things in common. They shared everything. Verse 33 tells us that they shared great power as they continued witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also find that they, had, they, they also participated in the great grace of God as it was being demonstrated and poured upon them. And then what we see then is that as this, this, this common unity of believers, they, they were so in tune with one another, they were impressed then to share their possessions with one another. The question is, why do you think that was necessary? Why was it necessary for this time for the church to respond in this way. Well, consider the fact that some, if not many, of the Christians who were in Jerusalem, they were not from there. The disciples, many, we look at Peter and John, they were from Galilee. They they lived in the northern part of Jerusalem. We know from Acts chapter 2 that many of the Christians who came to know the Lord came from areas of of Europe and around the the Mediterranean, even the northern parts of Africa. They were there in Jerusalem celebrating at Pentecost when the gospel was proclaimed to them, and as a result, they united themselves to the church that had formed there. 
And they decided not to go back to their homeland because as of yet, there had been no church formed in that location. And they realized they had a unity. They had more in common with these various folks who had centered themselves in Jerusalem than they did with the folks that were back home. And so they stayed in Jerusalem. But when they stayed there, they didn't have jobs. They didn't have homes to live in. Consequently, as verse 34 makes plain, though the church, the the people who were from there and who had the means came together so that no one among them lacked. Those believers were able to do so. They helped others who could not help themselves. And what we see is that the early church had a common concern for each other's welfare, not just spiritually, but also physically and materially. Derek Thomas states it this way. He says, In Jerusalem was a community in which those who had much sacrificed for the sakes of those who had little as a tangible expression of their love. Love for the Lord, love for one another. So that's the first contrast that I think this this passage brings out that we need to address and understand. And it it was not communism. It was community that was driving what we see occurring here in Acts chapter 4. That brings us to the next contrast that emerges from this passage. Luke provides us with two examples on display in the early church. One's a positive example. One's a negative example. One is of generous devotion. The other is of greedy deceit. That's the second point on your outline this morning. It is generous devotion versus greedy deceit. We find the positive example that Luke presents for us there in verses 36 and 37. He introduces us to a man who will continue to play a big part in the expansion of the gospel and the ongoing mission of the church as we will read about it in the book of Acts. In fact, this is the first time that we read of 23 different mentions of this man who was not from Jerusalem. He was not one of the locals. He was actually from Cyprus. And and as a matter of fact, he was a man whose name was Joseph, or as many of your translations will show, he was a man named Joseph. He was Joseph from Cyprus. Yet the apostles gave him a new name. They nicknamed him Barnabas. And then Luke tells us that that means, and to be translated, he was the son of encouragement. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Um, Joseph from Cyprus was a man of such character and behavior that those who knew him within the church and observed his behavior and his actions and saw that he was a man who was willing to be helpful. He was someone who spoke words of encouragement. He was one who blessed others by, being, by cheering them on, being their cheerleader, by being one who lifted them up. He was, he was a man who was such an encouragement, so much so that they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement, and the name stuck. As one has put it, his ministry became his moniker. Now, as I thought about that this week, I I told the earlier service, I just kind of had to push back from my desk for a second, lean back in my chair, folded my arms and sort of stared out the window in my office because I thought about this. If mature believers were to look at my life and give me a nickname based upon their impressions, what would it be? Think about that. 
Think about it from your perspective. If the mature believers in your life who know you best were to look at your life and observe it over a period of time, what nickname would they come up with? And would you like it? That'll stop you. That'll cause you to think. I want you to know that, that the nickname Son of Encouragement was apropos for Joseph of Cyprus. Barnabas was a great name for him. We read in chapter 9 that Barnabas invested in the lives of younger believers. In chapter 11, we find that he had a good eye and a glad heart. He encouraged believers to remain faithful to the Lord. In chapter 13, we read that he was a humble and trustworthy man. And in chapter 15, we read that he was patient with the imperfection of others. Here in chapter 4, though, Luke tells us that Barnabas was generous in his devotion. Devotion to the Lord, devotion to the church. Now, not much information is given to us. Luke doesn't provide a lot, but he does tell us enough. He tells us that, that in verse 37 that Barnabas sold some, some land, presumably in Cyprus, and when he sold it, he took the money and he brought the sales of the land into the storehouse. He laid it at the feet of the apostles for them to be able to use in every which way they decided to meet the needs that were arising within the church family. That was not something that Barnabas had to do. The church was not telling him that it was compulsory or mandating it, but it was something that he chose to do. John Stott writes that Barnabas did what he did was an act of liberality fully in keeping with his, with his character. And as Marita, Tony Marita has written, in this act of generosity, Barnabas demonstrated how he loved Jesus and people more than stuff. And that's the positive example that's presented to us in this passage. But I want you to notice it's not everyone was a Barnabas. Not everyone possessed that same positiveness that Barnabas did. In fact, Luke contrasts Barnabas and his generous devotion with Ananias and his wife Sapphira and their greedy deceit. There's some similarities, though. Let me point out to you that, that what Luke tells us is that both Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira had property. Both of them sold that property. Both of them took money from the sale of that property and brought it to the apostles for their disposal. However, notice the significant difference. Barnabas brought all of the money from the sale of that which he owned, while Ananias and Sapphira brought only part of the proceeds of what they sold. But let me make this very, very clear on the very front end. That in and of itself was not the problem. The problem was not the amount that was brought. The problem was not the percentage of the amount for which the land was sold. There was no mandate placed upon them. Therefore, we have to question, so then why did God judge Ananias and Sapphira so harshly? Well, to begin with, let me point you back to what I said at the outset of the sermon. And that is that Satan was still at work and on the attack of the church. We know that. We know that this entire issue is, is a result of Satan being at work based upon what Peter says there in verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. In what Peter asks, we learn that the issue was not Ananias and Sapphira only giving a portion of what they sold their possession for. It was the fact that they lied about how much they were giving. They lied about their charity. Luke uses an interesting word to describe what they did there. It, it's a word that's translated in English, kept back. And in English, that, that word carries the, the connotation of embezzling or misappropriating funds. Paul uses it later in the New Testament, and when he does, it's translated as pilfering. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, uses this same word to describe what Achan did in Joshua chapter 7 when he kept the beautiful robes that they had and the gold and the silver and he kept it back and he, he hid it for himself. It's the same word that's used here as keeping back some for themselves. And, and as I said, it, it, John Stott then goes on to make this assumption and, and, and makes this case for the fact that really what, was, what occurred here was, was that Ananias and Sapphira had evidently entered into some kind of a contract to give the church the total amount raised. And if that's the case, then obviously they did not live up to their side of it. They engaged in deception. They made it seem as though they had given all when in reality they had retained some of the money for themselves. They were deceptive and they were greedy. The question is, why would they go to that trouble? Well, to one degree, we can just say they went to that trouble and they deceived and they were greedy because they were sinners. The reality of it is, as many have said, even though the Holy Spirit of God had been poured out on the early church there in Acts chapter 2, that didn't mean that the church was comprised of holy and perfect people. You hear us tell you this all the time. We are not perfect people here at Ivy Creek. You don't have a perfect staff. You have a man standing before you this morning as your pastor who is not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. You can ask the rest of the staff and they'll tell you. You can find my wife. She'll detail it for you if you'd like. <laughs> I don't tell you that, though, as an excuse. I don't tell you that I'm not perfect as a way of being able to say, well, that just means you can just accept me as I am, that I can be sinful and I can be off-putting for all those kind of things, and that you just have to deal with it because I've told you I'm not perfect. No, when we acknowledge our imperfections, we are doing what is right. We are saying, look, we are not perfect people. And this is not a perfect church, but that does not allow us to use that as an excuse. It is actually something that ought to draw us to our knees before a holy God to repent of our sin and to repent of our errors and then to rise up being committed to following him in the direction and the leadership that he wants us to go. Such was not the case with Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps they saw the attention that Barnabas got. You know, Barnabas got a new nickname. Barnabas was well thought of. Barnabas had a good reputation within the church. Maybe that's what drove them. Well, then we'll do the same thing that Barnabas did, but hey, we'll, we'll keep back some of this for ourselves, and we'll make everyone else think that we are the same kind of guy that he is. They pretended to bring all of the money while actually keeping back a portion of it for themselves. 
And what we realize is that the issue was not the amount of the money. The issue was the hypocrisy involved in the gift. Ananias and Sapphira were pretenders. They were a couple who wanted a reputation like Barnabas had. They wanted praise and they wanted stature. They wanted popularity. And I want you to know sometimes those exact same things still affect people in the church today. Tony Morita, he makes this observation. He says, unfortunately, many live for the applause of the powerful. Others want to be on the inside with the leaders. Still others want admiration from members. Ananias and Sapphira's desire for respect and applause caused them to display a lack of integrity. And they hypocritically played the part of fully devoted and generous believers when in actual fact they were deceptive and they were greedy. And it is that recognition that brings us to the final contrast that we see emerge from this passage. Notice it with me there on your outline. The third point that I want you to see is this. It's the contrast between hypocritical falsehood and holy fear. Hypocritical falsehood and holy fear. Notice the real error that Peter said Ananias was guilty of there in verse 3. He says, Satan filled your heart, Ananias, to lie to the Holy Spirit. Then again in verse 4, he says, look, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that lying to the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's God of very God. And, and maybe it was that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have, possess a full understanding of their pneumatology. They didn't truly know who the Spirit was. Maybe they thought that he couldn't see and know everything about him, but he's God, and he absolutely knows everything about us. But here's what I want you to know. Ananias evidently didn't recognize that the magnitude of his sin was not that he lied to an individual. It was the fact that he lied to God as a result of lying to individuals. Um, listen, when one person lies to another person or to a group of people, God knows about it. And he considers it a personal offense to him, particularly when it happens within the community of his people. As one author has put it, when people do not value the holiness of God, they minimize sin. And when they do that, they devalue the cross where Jesus traded places with liars. And notice what happens. As soon as Peter revealed to Ananias that he had lied to God, Luke tells us that hearing these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Was it a heart attack? Was it a stroke? Was it a lightning bolt? Luke doesn't tell us. He was a doctor. He gives us no medical information as to what happened. But in light of the context, in light of the fact that his sin of lying to God had just been exposed to him and he fell down dead, we have to understand that this was the judgment of God upon Ananias. This was God's judgment being carried out. This was not some curse placed upon him by Peter. This was God's judgment based upon his sin. And notice what happens next. It happened again three hours later. We don't know where Sapphira was during this three-hour interval, but she didn't know what had happened. She's called in. Peter asks her the same question. She says, yes, we sold it for this amount. And Peter responds by asking, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit? Hypocritical falsehood. What we see being displayed. 
She was fully knowledgeable and therefore fully culpable. And Luke tells us that immediately she fell down at Peter's feet and breathed her last and was taken out and buried by her husband. And then notice, though, what happens. Notice, notice what Luke tells us in verse 5 and in verse 11. After Ananias fell down dead and was taken out and buried, word began to spread. And when it did, it says great fear came upon all those who heard these things. When Sapphira fell down dead and the same men that had buried her husband came and wrapped her up and took her out and buried her next to her husband, the word began to spread. And in verse 11, it says, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now that makes sense, right? If we were to witness something like that and hear about that, I think there would be great fear that would begin to spread among us as well. I suspect that we too would become fearful. I want you to know fear is simply this. It's an admission of vulnerability. It's acknowledging that there's something greater and bigger and powerful, more powerful than you are that's out there. And you're vulnerable to whatever that is. And if Ananias... And Sapphira's death communicated anything to the early church. It communicated that they were vulnerable, that they were exposed. The writer of Hebrews would go on to describe just how exposed they were and how exposed all of us are. He says in clear terms in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You realize God not only sees your actions, he knows the thoughts that lie behind those actions. He knows the motivations for why you do what you do. People on the outside may only be able to see the outside. God sees to the heart. He knows exactly everything there is. And then, according to this text, one day we will stand before him and be judged, not simply for our actions, but even for our thoughts and the intents of our hearts that no one else can see. I want you to know such a realization, such a realization should elicit fear within you. It should cause us to think very clearly about who God is, how holy he is, how powerful he is. Just like those folks in Jerusalem who heard of Ananias and Sapphira's death, I think recognizing that the judgment of God will one day come upon all of us should cause all of us to acknowledge that there is a holy awe and a reverence that we should have for the Lord. I think fear, sometimes we think of it as a bad thing. We don't like it. But listen, there is such a thing as a holy, healthy fear. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you cannot become a wise person without a proper fear and a holy awe of God. In fact, I would even say it this way. If you do not stand in awe of God, if you do not possess a deep reverence and a healthy fear of His holiness and His power, then you are unwise. Destruction will come eventually. And therefore, as one preacher put it, the problem isn't that we fear, it's just who or what we fear. We tend to fear the wrong things. We tend to fear the wrong people. 
Ananias and Sapphira feared the loss of, of financial security. They evidently feared that they wouldn't be thought of as highly as Barnabas was. But as Dennis Johnson has written, what, what they lacked was the one fear that they really needed. It was the fear of the Spirit of God who searches hearts. It's entirely proper and the sign of maturity, I believe, to fear sinning against a holy God. In fact, listen to what Luke goes on to write about the church. This, he's writing this in Acts chapter 9. It's after much of the spread of the church has already occurred outside of Jerusalem and in other parts of Jerusalem and in other parts of Israel and even further. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking, listen, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see what went together? Fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking circumspectly, realizing that God knows the thoughts and the intents of my heart, and there's nothing that I can say or think or do that is not completely revealed before Him, recognizing that to begin to move forward in my life, I have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church grew. It multiplied as a result of it. Ananias and Sapphira needed a holy fear of the Lord because their Satan-inspired hypocritical falsehood had threatened to ruin the Christian fellowship of the church of Jerusalem, and God judged it very severely. As one has put it, unity is fueled by generosity and is destroyed by deceit. Tony Morita, he, he puts it this way. He says, Ananias and Sapphira either didn't understand the gospel or had not allowed it to work deep into their hearts. The gospel frees us from addictions to self and to stuff, and it frees us from pretending. It frees us from wanting to, the praise from people. It frees us from wanting to lie and to steal and to deceive. It makes us honest and generous. It sets our minds on the glory that is to be revealed. And as such, he concludes this. He said, this story of Ananias and Sapphira should remind us of how badly we need to understand the gospel of grace and our identity in Christ. And it's that that leads me then to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. A healthy fear of our holy God will keep us from hypocrisy and greed so that by his grace, we remain a united generous community that is devoted to the Lord and to one another. I want to draw out just a few applications and then we'll close. The first one is just simply this, this. We have to come away from this recognizing how serious sin is. Sin is serious. We know sin is serious because Jesus Christ left heaven's throne to come to earth to be crucified on Calvary's cross so that we might be freed from our sin. So the very nature of the atonement that we have been made right with God proves to us how serious an issue sin is. But I want you to know there is something especially heinous to God about the sin of hypocrisy. Jesus spends the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 23 railing against it to the Pharisees. And this episode here in Acts chapter 5 reiterates that God will not tolerate phony Christians who put up a show. The second thing that we must be on guard against is that we must guard against the work of Satan. Particularly as a people of God, we have to recognize that, that Satan is at work to destroy the unity of God's people. 
and he will go about it in any way that he can. Yes, we will, we will experience attacks from the outside, but there is nothing that he enjoys more than to work his way to the inside and begin to create problems from the inside out. And therefore, we must never forget that Satan is always determined to do you harm individually, and he is determined to attack the church. We need to be reminded of that and on guard against it. Thirdly, we need to always remind ourselves that God is holy. J.I. Packer has written this. He said, God's holiness signifies everything about him that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe and adoration. However, we must recognize that it is a severe mistake to reduce God to a version of some kind of benign Santa Claus in the sky. Sometimes our thoughts of God is just he's just this happy old man that's just going to love us no matter what we do. But I want you to know what we see here in this passage before us is that God is a holy God. We sing the song, holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. There is nothing that is not pure and righteous about him. He is too pure to look upon evil. And he will judge it. Ananias and Sapphira, this story of them reiterate the seriousness of his holiness and of the full and final judgment that awaits those who deceive themselves and others. And then finally, as we've already discussed, this passage should drive us to the unity that we have in Christ. Since all of us are sinners, there's not a one of us that escaped that in this room, then all of us will stand vulnerable before a holy and righteous God. And apart from Christ, who suffered and died in our place, and apart from our faith in him, we will suffer for an eternity for that sin. But because of Jesus and because of what he's done and because of our faith in him, he unites us as individuals together into a local church body, but into the body of Christ as a whole. And he brings us together so that what we have in common is our faith in Christ. And that brings unity that transcends all the differences that may exist among us. He does not make us uniform in that we're all exactly the same, but he does make us unified in that we come together for the cause of Christ. And as such, when we do that, we come together and express our love for the Lord through expressing our love for one another. And we are able to be a people who are relentlessly and generously devoted to each other and to the Lord. So having looked at this entire passage this morning, my only prayer is simply this. May that be the case with the global testimony of the church, but may it also be the local testimony of Ivy Creek Baptist Church that we retain a holy fear of a righteous God and that that holy fear and our confidence in Jesus Christ, who is the one who has come to be the mediator between us and has settled our account with God, that we would be a people who come together generously and relentlessly convicted by the unity that we have with one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is poured upon us, for the work that you continue to do within us to mold us and to shape us and to make us into the men and women, boys and girls that you want us to be. We've been presented, Lord, sometimes it is hard when we look in the scriptures. You present us with examples. 
And those examples actually turn into mirrors that allow us to see ourselves for who we truly are. And sometimes, Lord, when we look into that, it's hard. It's hard to see it. It's, it's not hard that, that, that it's being shielded from us. It's hard for us to deal with the reality of what we see in the mirror. Your, your word does that not to, not to push us away from you. Your word accomplishes that so that we would fall before you humbly and ask for you to do a great work within us, molding us and conforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. My prayer is that this text this morning will do exactly that in the lives of the membership of this church here at Ivy Creek. Those who are in, in this room today, God, that you would use your Holy Spirit to, to help them see themselves for who they truly are. There may be one in this room today who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. They've never put their faith and confidence in you. My prayer is that you will bring conviction to them of what stands before them that a holy fear would be good for them today because it would draw them to the cross of Christ. For others in this room that have been drawn there, God, I pray that recognizing what this text says would cause us, Lord, to repent and to turn to you and to walk circumspectly, walk according to your will for our lives. May there not be things that we allow to come in that prevent us from following you completely and totally. This morning, Lord, I just thank you for the time that you've given us and the that you've allowed us to spend together today around your open word. We want to praise you for all that you do. In Christ's name, amen.